0: Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com.
1: So, I'd love to read a little bit of the Bible to you. This is from 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shehanna. You would have thought like he would have chosen names that are easy to like read out loud, wouldn't you? These are all really difficult names. Passed by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all your sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers and in front of uh, and, in, uh, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. So we live in something of a schizophrenic society or multiple personality disorder society. We're obsessed with image and we're obsessed with celebrity. And at the same time, we long for authenticity. Occasionally you get a politician and people say, I like him because he seems to be authentic. He seems to say what he actually thinks. This isn't a new phenomenon, this kind of dualism that we find ourselves living in. Throughout history, this has been the case. And it's kind of graphically illustrated in the story that we've just heard from the Bible. See, man looks at the outside first. So just a little bit of backstory to this. Um, What happened is um, when... um, God rescued the people of um, His people from slavery and took them into the promised land, and you know led them around the desert and then took them into the promised land. Um, they worshipped Him, but as they travelled around the desert for 40 years, what happened is they started to look and see what the other nations and what other people were doing around and about as they sort of made this journey for 40 years. And what they noticed is is that the other nations all had kings. Well, God was their king, but they thought, actually, we quite like the idea of having a king of our own. So what they did is they decided they would rather have a person to be their king than God to be their king. This is a really important moment in the story of the people of God. They look around and they see kings who are powerful, who have got all the right gear. And uh, they say, we want someone like that to be leading us. And such a sad story. And in 1 Samuel 8, verses 7 to 8, you'll know it. This is what um, the Lord says. He says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me. As their king. They have rejected me as their king. So, what they did is they went out and they thought, what sort of a king would we like? If we could choose our own king, what sort of king would we have? So, they looked for somebody who kind of fitted the bill of what they wanted a king to be like. And they chose this guy called Saul. And on the face of it, Saul had everything. He was a great military leader, he was a charismatic personality, he was an awesome warrior, and they thought, this is exactly the kind of person we want as a king, so they picked him. The problem is, when they picked him, they picked all his insecurities and all his fears and his ego and his pride as well, the things that they didn't look at, the things that they didn't choose, because they were obsessed with having someone who fitted the bill, And what happened over a period of time is that Saul's own fear and his insecurity began to get the better of him. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a situation where you have been afraid or where you have felt insecure and that has become fear. Well, if you have, you'll know that fear does one of two things to us. It either brings out the best of us or it brings out the worst of us. Speaking for myself, uh, sometimes fear has brought out the worst in me. And I don't like the person that I see in the mirror. Well, that's what happens to Saul. His ego and his insecurity gets the better of him. He becomes obsessed with his own PR. He becomes proud and, in, and unrepentant. And, you'll, and in 1 Samuel 15, there's this kind of key moment where he and Samuel agree that they're going to meet um, and they're gonna, the people of God, are to, the army, are going to have this sacrifice. And what happens is Samuel gets held up and so Saul looks around, and, the, and, the, and his army start to get restless. And so he starts to feel insecure. And so he does the one thing that he was explicitly told not to do. Well, he was told to wait. But he looks around, and he starts to worry what his troops are thinking. He starts playing, having, playing mind games with himself and thinks, well, if, if I don't step in, they're going to not think I'm a very good leader. So he steps in to Samuel's shoes and he, makes, he leads this sacrifice that he was not authorized to do. He wanted to have the appearance of being righteous while having done something that he was told not to do. He's more concerned with his image in front of people than he is with what's really going on. And so when Samuel comes, Samuel says, right, well, you've had the sacrifice. Uh, God has rejected you as king. And and so uh, Saul says, well, can't you just sort of pretend that God hasn't rejected me? And so Samuel reluctantly kind of goes through the motions of this facade, of this thing, and he never sees Saul again. And from that moment on, because of that one decision that was based on a whole lot of unmet, undealt with insecurity and fear and ego and pride and all the things that we all wrestle with at various different points in our lives. The Spirit of God, it says, left him. He wanted to have the appearance of being righteous without being righteous. He's more concerned with his image than with what was really going on. And that is not that different to what happens today. We have a really high... Well, I speak for myself. I don't want to speak for any of you. Often, I can place a really high value on external appearances at the expense of things like character and integrity. Character and integrity take time and effort to form and shape. They don't grow quickly. We want our own kings our, rather than God. We buy into the culture of celebrity. So easy. You go to the news agent, and there's a hundred different magazines with, you know, all they're doing is selling you a lie. It's like a comic for adults. Celebrity magazines. We become or some of us can become obsessed with what we look like. You'll know Robbie Williams' song, Bodies, probably. But it's got this great line that says this. All we've ever wanted is to look good naked. Hope that someone can take it. God save me rejection from my reflection. I want Perfection. And there's a sociologist called Mark Sayers who's out in Australia, and he talks about the crisis, particularly amongst younger people. They're having an identity crisis, because what happens is they look on social media, and they see their friends all having this epic, amazing time, and life just seems to be fun the whole time and exciting the whole time, and they never seem to be sad, and they never seem to be lonely, and they never seem to be upset. And everything's always great because the sun always shines in TV, in the words of the famous song by Aha. Who even has heard of Aha? Anybody? Oh, good. Good. I'm amongst friends. And when I say this this evening, I'm just going to get a sea of blank faces because the students have no idea who our are. But the sun always shines in TV. Like, if you came with us on a family holiday 10 years ago, we used to go up to the northeast of England. And if you've ever been to the northeast of England, basically it rains like 99% of the time. uh, But if you you watched our home video, you would think the weather was glorious for two weeks because every time the sun came out, we got the video camera out and said, do something that looks fun, children, so that when we can look back at this in years uh, years to come, as we have done, we'll think, wow, what a brilliant time we had in the northeast. We love the northeast, but we don't love the weather. The sun does not always shine on TV. So we live in this culture where what we see can often be more important. We place a higher value on that than the substance. It's a bit like often we're more interested in the froth than we are in the coffee. So a number of years ago, Nikki and I did this show called Changing Rooms. Have any of you ever heard of Changing Rooms? Okay, good, right. Again, this is going to be totally lost on the guys tonight. So, um, well, I'm just going to show you what happened, actually.
0: Nikki and her husband Bill live on the first floor of this Victorian conversion. They haven't touched their bland bedroom since they moved in and think it needs brightening up.
1: Uh, we're letting changing rooms in because I like Carol Smiley and because <laughs> Nikki told me to. <laughs> oh, that's the problem, is that
0: space true? Oh, I'm flattered, Bill. Down the road, Kate and her flatmate, Lindsay, live on the ground floor of this terrace conversion. Kate would like her spacious living room to be more striking, but is nervous about having changing rooms move in for two days. This is the most important room in the whole house, which is why everybody's asking me, why on (laughs) earth are you doing this, you fool? I think the thing I love about the room is the double doors out to the garden and the feeling of space that you get when you're in here because of that.
1: Yeah, it's just a light, airy room. What would really upset me would be to walk into a chintz room. I couldn't think of anything worse than a chintz room with sort of um, all the light taken out by fuzzy, frilly curtains and lace and things.
0: I'd hate it if the room suddenly appeared really small and I couldn't have parties anymore, I couldn't have 30 or 40 people in, the ceilings were suddenly much lower or if there just wasn't as much space. Other than that, I'm not that fussy.
1: As long as it's not pink. Okay. (laughs) I'm moving out if it's pink. (laughs) I think that'd be cool, Flo.
0: Could get a bit carried away doing this all day. Flock it. Open your eyes. pink, your favourite. Lindsay (laughs) is just (laughs) aghast. I like it. I could live in this for a while. Well, it's a bit different to the room you've just left. Yes. (laughs) Do you think they liked it as much as you've liked this? They couldn't not.
1: I'm going to go and live with them. (laughs) (laughs) Well... It's amazing what you'll do when someone puts a camera in front of you and encourages you a little bit. Um, so we're still talking to them. I'm not sure they're still talking to each other. But, um, but um, you know what? So we had this, it was amazing time and um, there's a whole kind of crew of people that you don't see. I mean, there's no way we could wreak that much havoc in two days by ourselves. Um, so the whole team behind the scenes that kind of work with you to help you destroy your friends' living rooms. Um, but what happened was after the first day, like we'd painted the walls pink and lime green and we'd flocked the walls. That's that amazing sort of, you know, shave velvet thing on the wall. Um, and, uh, and we'd flocked the banister and we hadn't flocked the TV. And, but what happened is we noticed, we looked at the room and it didn't feel quite right. And then we looked at the ceiling and the ceiling was still cream. And obviously the walls are pink and green but the ceiling's cream. So we said like, um, to the director, well, what do we do? And he says, don't worry, it's not in shot. Don't worry because it's not in shot. No one will see it. Wow. We painted that ceiling white that night. But I have been struck so many times by that as a metaphor for often how we live Our own lives. So often, uh, we can live like what's important is what's in shot. It doesn't matter what people can't see. What matters is what people do see. How we present ourselves. And there's nothing less authentic in life than when the in shot doesn't marry up with what is happening out of shot. That is essentially Saul's problem. What is happening in shot is not the same as what is happening out of shot. See, God is not so interested in what is happening in shot. God is interested in what is happening out of shot. He is interested in what is happening out of shot. So when he goes to find a new king, Samuel goes, well, this is the eldest son. I mean, surely it must be him. And he's a pretty impressive specimen right there, God. And God goes, no, because I can see his heart. And his heart is revealed uh, a little bit later on. He's proud, and he's arrogant, and he's condescending, and he's cynical. God says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this happens seven times. Seven times Samuel looks at the in shot. And seven times God says there is not an integrity between the in shot and the out of shot. And that's when Samuel says, well, have you got any other sons? And suddenly Jesse remembers he's got another one. But he's not even been invited. He's out looking after the sheep, which was kind of the lowest of the low job to do. And when he finally arrives, God says, that's the one. Rise and anoint him. That is the one. And as the Jewish historian Josephus puts it, Samuel, the aged, whispered into his ear the meaning of the symbol, you will be the next king. Humanly, it doesn't make any sense at all. He was the youngest, so he was the least favored. He's the least experienced. He's never been in battle. But God has seen his out of shot. God has seen his heart. And it's summed up so beautifully by what happens next. I don't know what you would do if you'd just been anointed king. But I'd probably throw quite a large party and have a really brilliant time. I'd make plans. I'd think about my first hundred days. That's the thing in business they say, isn't it? you know, plan your first hundred days. That's the day, that's the time to make an impact. You know what David does? He goes straight back to the sheep. He goes straight back to the sheep. He goes back to what he was doing before until God makes what he said would happen, happen. He doesn't force it. He doesn't try it. We've got a whole 20 years or thereabouts of David knowing that he is the next king and not forcing it upon anybody else, waiting for God to open the door. David is always... Approachable, always believable, always humble, always authentic, even when he messes up, which he does. He doesn't hide, well, he starts, tries to hide it initially, and then he realizes what is out of shot will always eventually come in shot. And he repents, and we've got one of the most famous psalms in the whole Bible Have mercy on me, O God. Off the back of what happened. He made sure his out of shot was reflected in what was happening in shot. See, God often sees the things that we miss, the hidden things. He sees the heart. A number of years ago, um, I, I, I damaged my knee playing sport. And being a man, um, I didn't go to the doctor straight away. I waited until I couldn't get up off the sofa and get the remote control. Uh, and at that point, I decided that it would be a good idea to go and see the doctor. By which point, my knee was kind of the size of a small football. And the doctor said, um, is this a recent injury? I said, well, it depends how you define recent. Um, and, uh, and I went in, and I had an MRI. And as I sat there in, an, in, in the MRI, MRI um, sort of chamber, and what happens is it takes a detailed photograph of the whole inner workings of your knee so the doctor can work out what the problem is. And as I sat there, um, I felt this question. I felt like God saying, what would happen if you saw an MRI of your own heart? And, and to be honest with you, I wasn't sure that I'd want to see an MRI of my own heart. I don't know if i pose that question. Some people here would be like, I would love to see an MRI of my own heart. Uh, many of us, I think probably the thought of that fills us with a little sense of dread and shame. And the good news is, we're forgiven. The good news is we don't have to be slaves. The good news is we don't have to feel afraid or insecure or ashamed anymore. Because actually, when we look at an MRI, when God looks at our MRI, he sees Jesus. Because if you know Jesus You are hidden with Christ in God. And when he looks at us, he looks at Jesus. He doesn't see our shame. He doesn't see our pain. He doesn't see our mistakes. He doesn't see the things we didn't do or the things that we did do. He sees Jesus, and he loves us relentlessly. The point of talking about this is not that anyone leaves feeling ashamed. So how do we begin To live authentically. How do we begin to make sure that the out of shot marries up and is in line with what is out of shot? We need to recognize that if we want to live, we have to die. It's a great paradox, isn't it, of the Christian life. Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his soul, lose her soul? He says, take up your cross and follow me. Taking up your cross means taking up the cross that is going to lead to your own crucifixion, your own death. So that as you are hidden with Christ in death, you are raised again, a new creation. And the great encouragement, isn't it, is is that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. As we surrender to him, we find that his life wells up within us. So, I guess the first place to start is we need to be authentic with God. We've talked about this already, but you see in the Psalms, David is just real. There are times when he's full of joy, and there are Psalms that are full of joy. There are times when he is angry. There are times when he feels uh, betrayed, and you see it all. You see an authentic life lived out on the pages of the Psalms. So interesting when you marry them up with a narrative in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, some of the book of Kings. Just extraordinary authenticity. David was so secure in God's love for him. He danced in front of God and in front of a whole lot of people in his underpants he was repentant when he was confronted and you can only live that way you can only be like that if you are secure in who you are in jesus when you know that you are deeply and profoundly loved that you are that you have always been known and you've always been loved that god promises that not just but for everybody else, but for you as well, that he rejoices over you with singing, that he's written your name on the palm of his hand so that he would never forget you, that you are the apple of his eye. When you... when you live a life where you repeat, where it becomes part of your breathing, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. When that becomes your whole life, you are secure and you're in a place where you can be real and you can be authentic and you can be who you long to be. It's a choice. They are the, that is the unseen foundations on which the whole rest of the house of our lives are built is what holds us together. Secondly, we need to be authentic with each other. We need to be real with each other. How many times has someone, and I recognize there's a context for this, And you know, but how many times has someone said to you, how are you? And the truth is, you have felt awful. And you say, I'm fine. When we do that, We rob ourselves and each other of the opportunity of growing together. So the Christian, when you were called to Christ, you weren't called to follow him on your own. You were called to follow him with a whole other motley crew of people who were trying to work it out as they go along as well. That's the church. That's all of us. I was thinking this morning, the reason we made havoc with that person's room is there's a whole team helping us create havoc putting a partition that looked just horrific in the middle of this light, open, airy, spacious room. We We hung these bits of, I don't know what they were, like cotton material, like off fishing wire across the ceiling to look like clouds. I mean, it was just horrific. But we did it as a team. I mean, we got the blame, but there was a team behind us. We are called to do life with each other. The good times, and there are so many of those, i just got back from one, there'll be another one. You know, wildfires, they happen all the time in collectives. The good times and the hard times. We are called to do it together, to be real together, to find a crew who we can do that with. We can't do it with everybody, but we can do it with some people. Find your crew. Find your people and be prepared to be vulnerable. What I've found, conversely, in my own life is often when I'm afraid of being vulnerable because I think that people reject me, what I find is they love me more because I've given a part of myself to them and I have trusted them with it. We need to balance, of course, the difference between introspection and self-indulgence. We need to be wise sometimes about who we, what we share with who. We need to be sensitive to what's going on in their, their lives. But we need to be looking for people that we can do that with. We need to be people who are faithful to our friends. One of the stories that I love most about David is one of the most overlooked stories. So he makes this promise to Jonathan. And David and Jonathan, we could do a whole sermon series on them. Jonathan was supposed to be king. He was the next in line. He was Saul's son. And he recognized the anointing was on David. He recognized that God's hand was on David. So he said, you're going to be king. You'll imagine what that must have been like. Getting ready your whole life only to see somebody else take your place. And if anybody had a reason to be angry or bitter or, misunderstood or or confused or resentful, it would have been him. But no, he loved his friend. And he celebrated what God was doing in his friend's life, even at his own cost. And so... Uh, What happens is Saul spends years trying to pursue and trying to kill David. David and Jonathan form this extraordinary friendship. And they promise that they will look out for each other and for each other's families. Although um, David is an enemy of Jonathan's father, they choose to be friends. And so what happens is uh, Jonathan is killed in a battle. And eventually, um, David is made king. And normally, in, in the culture at the time, what would happen is any surviving members of the previous ruler's family would be executed. The way to stop a coup is to kill it fast and ruthlessly. And so, eventually, someone says, Everyone else is dead. We found this one son left. Do you want, what do you want us to do with him? His name's Meshibapheth. And the only reason uh, uh, no one killed him is because no one could find him, because he's, he's got crippled feet, so he can't move very fast. What do we do? What, do we take him outside? Do we execute him now? And, and David says, Bring him to me. And what he says is, Your brother, your father was my friend. You are going to sit and you're going to eat at my table for the rest of your life. That is what a faithful friend is like. Connect groups are a great place to begin to form those kind of friendships, those authentic, deep friendships where we can be honest and be real. Do you know what? I just, knowing life, most of us in here are just, life is going really well. And like, if, the, if you are that person, just thank Jesus Thank you, God, that life is going well. But I, I just know that it would be unusual in a room this large with this many people for somebody not to be in the fight of their life right now. You do not need to fight alone. You do not need to go through whatever you are going through alone. You do not need to feel that nobody else would get you, that you would be judged. Here, in this church, in this house, we love and we value everybody. We accept everybody. It is not our place to judge, it is our place to love and to welcome. Third thing is we need to be authentic with the world at large. David and Goliath. When everyone else was knocking their knees, it was David who said, "You, the rest of you, you Israel I army, mean, you've forgotten who God is. You've forgotten who's on your side." And he went out and he took down a giant with a stone. As the people of God, we need to recover our sense of our voice. We have authority not because of us, but because God has given us His Spirit, which lives in us. We have His authority, Christ in us individually, us corporately, the hope of glory. We need to lose our sense of self consciousness. Yeah, someone, what, do you do, what did you do on Sunday? Oh, I met up with some friends. Oh, that was nice. You go for a walk? Kind of from the car park. Oh, what did you do? Oh well, you know we you know we um we did some stuff and it was you know it was good. Well, what did you do? Oh, you know well we you know, we sing along. Oh, was it a football match? No, no, it wasn't really a football match. We listened to a talk. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was good. It was good. What did you talk about? Oh, we just talked about uh, changing rooms. <laughs> and what did you do afterwards? Oh well, you know we um you know we kind of said we'd support each other and wow, that sounds a lot like church. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be ashamed. We shouldn't feel ashamed that we belong to Jesus, that we're Jesuses. I understand sometimes that, you know, that, that thumping in the heart when someone asks you a question, like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? Plan what you're going to say ahead of time. You know, pre-script that I went to church on Sunday. And practice saying it with a smile on your face like it's the best thing ever rather than this sort of, sort of like blip in the weekend that was otherwise great. What I love about Mike is Mike um, Mike could be doing full-time ministry if he wanted to. Instead, he is working as a sound engineer in a drag show in the West End. What an incredible place to witness to Jesus. Wouldn't it be a loss if rather than ministering to people who are, you call them the, the angels. Come and just tell us real quick. So, just tell us about this show, Kinky Boots, and, um, and why you love what you do.
0: Uh, yep, uh, so I work on a show called Kinky Boots at the Adelphi Theatre, you should all come see it, keep me in work. And um, uh, it's a show that uh, has some drag uh, queens in it, and they're called the Angels. So it's fun, I'm surrounded by angels in both the physical and the spiritual. Um, and uh, the reason i do it is because um god has given me a heart for them and god has given me a heart for uh for them to know him um and uh yeah i i would be doing a disservice if i wasn't doing what i do and yeah it's is that really you you've taught me a lot about how asking god's heart for people and uh god just broke Breaks my heart for these guys, and um, yeah, it's a real fun just to just to pro- share prophetic nuggets with them that they don't even know. Just call out their destiny, their goodness. Um, I'm aware that whenever we go into places where we often don't think Jesus is, that's where He's most present. Um, and uh, I've experienced the presence and power of God in some incredible ways, and yeah, so that's sort of why.
1: doesn't have to be a drag queen. What about the person working next to you? What about the person you sit next to at school? What about the person that you uh, see every week at the golf club or the, it's all quite posh and Guildford, isn't it? So it might be a golf club. I don't know. Or it could be, uh, you know what I mean. Those are the people that God has entrusted us to love. To find out his and call out his plans and his purposes and his destiny for their lives. And how will they do that if we don't share it? How will they know? You know, for the longest time, I wouldn't share my faith with people because I was worried that they would just, um, they they knew what I was really like. So they'd just think I was a fraud. And when I eventually did share my faith with one of my friends, he said, oh, thank goodness you finally talked about what we've all known for ages. People are looking for hope. They're looking for light. They are looking for people of integrity, people who are authentic, people who out of shot, marries with their, their, what, what, what is in shot. And that is everything. We all get to be a part of this extraordinary thing that, that God is doing. So it begins by being authentic with him, being authentic with ourselves, being honest with ourselves. It continues by finding a crew and and doing life together in such a way that we live real, uh, integrated, holistic, Christ-centered lives, and that it's worked out in our context, whatever that is. So just as we come into land, I want to offer us all an opportunity to respond now, my experience teaches me that we can either feel guilty about the fact that we're not, you know, that there's this out of shot stuff going on, or we can decide that we are gonna we are gonna allow Christ to invade our lives. And what I found is that when I allow Christ to invade my life, my whole life comes back into line because I'm not spending my emotional energy and my and my all my headspace thinking about how I can live a better life. I find I want to live a better life because I've encountered the love of Jesus again and it has wrecked me all over again. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to stand. And I'm just going to pray a real simple prayer that uh, you can um, echo in your heart. And this is just... Jesus, I want more of you. I cannot do this by myself. I don't want to do this by myself. Fill me again. Wreck my life again with your love, with your goodness, so that my out of shot comes into line with what everybody else sees. And you know what? What God sees when he looks at each one of us is someone who is awesome. He sees the version of ourselves that we long to be. He sees the plans and the purposes that he has for us. But more than any of that, he looks at us and and I think he must say to the whole cloud of witnesses that is cheering us on the whole time, that one there, he's mine. I love him. That one there, I love her. She's mine. She's my child. I love her. I've got an amazing plan. I've got an amazing purpose for her life. I love the way that she does this. I, I love the way that he does that. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Just thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you're already here. And Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would Ruin us again with the relentless love you have for each one of us. Thank you that you promise that you have called us with loving kindness, that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you rejoice over us, each of us, every one of us we singing. Thank you that you say to each one of us, over each one of us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you that you loved us so much, each one of us, that you gave your one and only Son so that we would know you and love you and walk with you and be free and live whole, authentic, integrated lives. Just move amongst us now. We've, got to, we've run a little bit over, but I just want us to just press in. Just The best prayer that I know in these moments is a prayer of faith, which is just thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for me. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your favor toward me. Now, some of us are feelers, so we we will already be feeling peace or the love of God. Others of us, we're not so much feelers, but that's why it's important that we remind ourselves this isn't based just on what we feel, this is based on what is true. More importantly, it's based on what is true. That's why those scriptures are so important. He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love, with loving kindness I have drawn you. Thank you. Thank you. As the Holy Spirit is here, he's just beginning to move amongst us. Let's just give him a few moments just to meet with us.